Thanks for joining us. You have Jonathan here, the Dad Corp podcast for another weekly episode. We appreciate your support. Thank you so much for all the feedback and sharing. We are now in 31 countries. We love you all. We can't thank you enough for being part of the Dad Corp community. This week's episode is brought to you by www.thedadcorp.com. Come check out our website while you're there. Pick up a Dad Life Collection shirt or one of our Dad Life Comfort Collection shirts. We have discounts for our listeners. Enter podcast 15 and we'll give you 15% discount. Our shirts feel great. They look great. They're high quality. The only thing better than our company is our customer service. So if you reach out and you have any questions, you'll get a response from Dustin or I. We have thousands of reviews across our social media. If you do decide to pick up a shirt, take some pictures with the kids, send them to us. We'll shoot them out on our social media. We love to get feedback. We love to see the pictures of our dads out there wearing our shirts and enjoying the dad life. So we hope you enjoyed the music this week. We changed it up a little bit. We had a chance to meet with country singer Shellem Klein, who has the song Little Pink Glasses. That's the song you heard. So go out there and support Shellem Klein. He has a great following. He wrote the song about his daughter. He's another engaged dad who just loves fatherhood. He's living in the trenches. And so let's go out there and support him. Also, this week's episode is brought to you by Declan James Watches, founded by U.S. Navy SEAL Brian Dougherty. If any of you have heard our recent podcast, you know that I am a huge fan of this watch. I bought one myself. I wear it everywhere. I go to the beach with it. I go to business with it. It is one of the most versatile watches I have in my wardrobe. So if any modern dad out there wants to look good, feel great with a fantastic watch on their wrist, that is the one to pick up. And to make it even better, Brian has given us a 10% discount for our listeners on the DadCorp podcast. So enter DC10 on his website, www.declanjameswatchco.com. So go to the website, check them out for yourself. Let's support an American hero and another dad who is in the trenches being engaged and building a legacy for his kids. All right, DadCorp listeners, I am so excited to get this week's episode going for you all. I had an opportunity to speak with Terry Dooley. Terry is a 30-year industry veteran, and most importantly, he has a beautiful family with two kids, one son and one daughter. Terry is one of those individuals that I absolutely admire, look up to, and have just been overly impressed with from the first day I had a chance to meet him and through all of our conversations. There are some people you get a chance to meet with and they just exude authenticity, the wisdom that comes out from their experiences and the way that they are able to communicate it in a way that's practical and enlightening and just hits you to the core and rattles how you think about a subject. Terry is one of those individuals. Every conversation that I have with him, I walk away inspired and thinking about some new learning that he has taught me. So 
I can't wait for you to hear the insight straight from the man himself. He resides in Iowa, so we had a lot of fun talking about some of the small town burnt activities we had growing up, some of the different cultural festivities that happen in Iowa, such as the Iowa State Fair, as well as Terry's philosophies on parenting. So without further ado, let me just let you listen straight from the man himself, and let's get this podcast started. Hey, Terry, do I have you out there? You have me out here. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, it's about 80 degrees here in Florida already. Sun's out and got the pool out here behind the house, so I can't complain too much anymore. It's cloudy here, been raining all night long, ground's wet, bit muddy, so we'll see what it's like today. I'm actually really thinking about, do I ever want to go back to New York City now? Because I don't know if I want to go through another winter. Heck, I don't blame you. As I get older, I'm thinking, it's about time to you know get out of this cold weather. But I've grown up my whole life in the wintertime, and a lot of my activities are based in the winter. My hunting and fishing, and one of the things that I enjoy more than anything uh, in the world is going out and ice fishing. And sitting on the ice in the tent, and you got a thermos of coffee, a little bottle of fireball out there. You're catching some bass and walleyes and crappies. And I mean, it just life doesn't get any better than that. And how did you get into ice fishing? I always find that an interesting hobby because it's not something that you can just decide, hey, I wake up, I want to go ice fishing. You, you need to be at that, right? Uh, you, well, I mean, I've done it since I was a kid, but it's not hard. Once you get over the fear of, of going through the ice, which I, I went through the ice two times in my lifetime, you go out there and, I mean, you can buy the poles and the gear and stuff. Costs you maybe a couple hundred bucks to get an initial setup for it. And, and then if you like it, you can invest in the electronics that we use and, and there you're getting into thousands of dollars a year but it's it's really a pretty cheap hobby when you get right down to it and it's just fun as the dickens i mean there's just nothing more fun in the wintertime than sitting inside a tent with a little portable heater where it's about 55 degrees inside the tent you got a couple holes drilled through the ice you're fishing and you step outside your tent and it's negative five out it's just kind of cool really and do you stay all day or is it something where you sleep in the tent overnight? Is it a multi-day track or does it just depend on how you plan to go out? So in Iowa, we don't we don't get that massively thick ice like they do up in Minnesota. So Minnesota, they put like campers on the ice where they'll stay out there a week at a time and ice fish. So usually down here, if we get a really cold winter, we'll be able to drive our trucks out on the ice. But we'll go out and fish six, seven, eight hours and we'll cook some eggs, cook some breakfast out on the ice, have lunch and, and stuff. And once you catch uh, 50, 60 fish, you pack it up and head home and clean the fish up and put them in the freezer and enjoy them for the rest of the year. And what's the difference in ice fishing and just going out and during the summer? Is it just the, the weather itself or is, is it better fishing when it's ice fishing? I think it's better fishing when it's ice fishing. It's a little bit uh, softer of a bite because it's so cold in the water and the fish aren't quite as aggressive as they are in the, the summertime. But the beauty of ice fishing is you can move all over the lake. You hop on your four-wheeler, hook the tent up behind you, and you drag it wherever in the lake that you want to go. And on shore fishing, they got to be in shore and, and spawning to catch them right off the shoreline, or you've got to have a boat, which gets a lot more expensive. So ice fishing allows you to be much more mobile. 
across a, a larger swath of water than what you can in the summertime unless you have a boat. And then even in the summertime when you have a boat, you run into the recreational side of, of the lakes, boating, skiing, tubing. That's never good if you're out there trying to fish as they're stirring up the water and, and scaring the fish. So ice fishing's just, yeah, I mean, it's just a blast. I'll have to get you and I one in the winter and uh, take you out and do a little ice fishing. You'll you'll like it. Let's do baby steps. I, you have me convinced to come out and see this Iowa State Fair first. Oh, the the people that own uh, the stands at the fair, it, they're basically mini lots. To, to be able to put a food stand at the fair, you've got to own a, a portion of the fairgrounds and, and a lot to be able to put your booth on. And you cannot buy those, Jonathan, to save your life. And if you do get the chance to buy a spot at the fair... It's a million dollars. It's incredible. There's lots at the fair that have been in families for, you know, two generations and they won't give them up for nothing. I mean, I, I know a couple of people that the only work they do during the year is during the two weeks of the fair and they'll make three, four, four hundred thousand dollars in two weeks. And that's all they do. Don't get me wrong. The, the fairgrounds takes a pretty good slice of the pie, but you're still making a truck pot of money. I mean, where else are you going to go buy a corn dog for eight bucks? <laughs> and I honestly don't even hardly go to the fair anymore because I went there so much as a kid. But I go there and, and one of my favorite things, the fair is cheese curds, the Wisconsin cheese curds. And heck, you used to be able to buy that for 75 cents. And now I'm spending seven dollars for the same same cheese curd that I got for 75 cents. 40 years. And people are probably paying it, though. Oh, yeah. There's a million people a year in Iowa that go to the Iowa State Fair. Yeah, that's incredible. In Pennsylvania, where I went to college uh, at Penn State, they had this arts fest. And this arts fest became this massive event in that area and outside of a uh, Penn State, say Ohio State or uh, Michigan home football game. The arts fest was probably the biggest week event in, in the city area there. And then what happened, though, is it became so popular because the, the lots and your space and, and the cost of everything and the number of people coming in became so expensive. They actually started to have these spinoffs, cultural event two weeks later that wasn't as big, but it actually created another mini economy just because people were bucking the Arts Fest week because uh, it just became too mainstream, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, we've got uh, we've got arts, art festivals that, and the city usually puts those types of things on, but the art festival, the Italian festival, festival that and that actually got canceled this year as well as the art festival already and then all the counties in iowa i I shouldn't say all of them but the vast majority of the counties in iowa have local fairs too county fairs so the the food vendors in a lot of cases will travel around to the various counties and, and set up in the county fairs as well and the county fairs are generally driven more towards the agricultural side of it where it's a lot of showcasing of cows and, and hogs. And, and when I grew up, I, I grew up in a real small town and used to go to the county fair all the time. And one of the most fun things that I ever did as a kid, and they don't let you do it anymore now, was what was called a grease pig contest. And so the, the younger kids, and, and generally you're pretty young, 10 or, 10 or under, uh, they take a little piglet, but a young pig, and they grease them up with axle grease and just smother the pig with axle grease and put you into a, a circle, and you had to catch the little toad. And uh, so you'd have kids running around, and you'd grab that pig and pick it up, and he'd start swimming, and he'd have all that grease on him, and he'd drop down, and you'd have to hold it for 10 seconds before you could be declared that you captured the, the pig. <laughs> oh, my God, was that fun. And, and the prize, of course, was just simply a cake. 
you, you got a cake if you could if you could capture the pig and man you'd have five six seven eight kids in the circle trying to catch catch that pig and it was <laughs> so much fun and you and I have talked a long time and we've talked about the small towns that we come from, but where I grew up, we didn't have the, the grease pig, although I, I'm sad. I feel like I missed something good in life. I almost want to be able to do it at this age, but we had snake catching. You'd go to these events and there was rattlesnake catching in, in Pennsylvania. They would go and people would try to see how quickly they could bag a, a group of rattlesnakes. And it wasn't kids. This was adults, but they had a kid's version, which was really wild, which was gardener snakes, which are fun, but. They're snakes. And so you'd have a bunch of kids like eight years old to 12 or 13 years old trying to bag a bunch of gardener snakes. And, and it's fascinating because I have like zero fear of snakes because of that, because I, I got a chance to do it. And and I learned, you know, obviously, copperheads and rattlesnakes, you don't want to get bit by one and they're really dangerous if you do. But overall, when I see a snake, it, I just go the other way and I, I watch for them when I'm going through the, the woods. But it's, it's fascinating because my wife who had never grown up around snakes. She sees a snake on a road and we're in a car. She feels like it's going to open up the door and come get her. A lot of those are gone anymore. I, I'm almost sure like probably some safety or law suit uh, threat probably closed that down. I haven't heard of them for years. It's been decades probably since I've heard about that type of event in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and it's a shame because, I mean, those are experiences as a kid you just you ch- cherish for a lifetime. Even if you look at like animal cruelty, like there, it's it exists, but that's not the that's not where the energy should have been spent on that, right? If you have people out there raising pit bulls and and beating them and and then fighting them, I can get behind that. But I, I just don't get the understanding of a cultural event where some kids are running around trying to chase a pig. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was it was just a tremendous amount of fun. I wish I wish the kids could still do it, but they can't. So. And what's the best food for anyone that would go to the Iowa State Fair? What's the one thing that somebody would have to try? Oh, heck. I mean, there's so many of them. you got fried Twinkies. You've got pickle dogs, fried butter, chicken on a stick. They're just all kinds of inventions. And they always have a contest with what's the newest creative food at the fair and, and which one wins it each year. And, and probably the, the one that people always want to try the most when they come into to Iowa to visit the Iowa State Fair is fried butter. And uh, it, it's actually better than what you think, <clears throat> but it's nearly impossible to eat the whole thing because your arteries would be clogged and you'd probably be dropping on the concrete after you were done. But I like pickle dogs is, is probably my favorite, which is a salami a cream cheese around a dill pickle. And those are pretty tasty. Are those fried? No, it's just a, a long dill pickle with cream cheese and then uh, uh, layered on uh, salami wrapped around it. And it's just called a pickle dog. They, they are tasty, downright tasty. That doesn't sound so bad for you either compared to some of the other things you just mentioned. No, and one of my other favorite ones is is the the bacon. They I forget what they're called, but they're the little wiener dogs, the like the smoked sausages, the small ones. Okay. And then they have a bacon that's covered in brown sugar and caramelized, wrapped around it on a stick. Oof! You could put ten pounds on in a day if you even get your hands on enough of those. I mean, there'll be three, four hundred people in line at that stand the entire day. Wow. It's crazy. And then it's got a big dirt racetrack that they do stock car races on a couple of nights during the fair. And, and then that, that area also serves as a uh, stage and they'll have bands come in and play different nights at the fair. And, 
And so it's, it's quite a deal. I mean, it truly is a lot of fun. When something in the state of Iowa gets put into the top 100 things to do in your lifetime, it's got to be somewhat cool. Yeah, when you told me about that, I was like, oh, I got to make that on my bucket list. It's interesting to see some of these county fairs and the movies and stuff, and, and you get an appreciation that's obviously important, but I just couldn't get over how big it was. And it, it matches the stereotypes most people think. I mean, you've got people from all walks of life and a lot of outfits and clothings that you'd walk by and you're just, huh, wow, <laughs> I didn't know that still existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you can get that anywhere in, uh, in the country. I have that thought going through my mind at least five times a day in New York City. Before the streets emptied, like I wouldn't have to walk two blocks without that thought going through my mind. Really? <laughs> that's funny. And that, that's assuming people wore clothes. Every once in a while, you, you'd run past the, the person that decided to just wear the birthday suit for the day. Oof. I don't, I mean, I don't even know what I'd say if I saw that. You don't say anything the first time you see it. You're speechless. You know how when you get something that you just aren't ready to see, your eyes take a second to adjust, and, and sometimes the moment passes before you really can get the words to say something? That's what it's like. You, yeah. you, you literally, you look across the street. I remember the first time they were just walking down the street and Terry, it was as if you and I would be walking on our way to like a meeting in the office. There, there was absolutely in that person's mind, nothing wrong with what they were doing. They were just walking down the street perfectly naked. And I remember as I was walking, I, I looked and my eyes went over and then they went straight again because you never want to think you're staring at somebody. And then I was, wait a second, it registered like three seconds later that, wait a second, that person was naked. And so I look back and, and my eyes just took this adjustment period of, am I really seeing this? Yeah, I was really seeing that. And, and you're speechless and you don't even know what to say. And, and then the next time you look at it, it's almost, okay, well, I've already seen one of those. So I don't need to see that. You know, nothing special here. That's just somebody naked in New York City. And they don't get thrown in jail for it? But it's a fascinating city that you can get thrown in jail for, and, and I'm being exaggerated, you won't get thrown in jail, but you'll get a hell of an expensive ticket uh, for taking a right on a red light. So that that is a big issue. But somebody naked, as long as they're not bothering somebody, good for you. Go on your merry way. New York's one of those places where the rules and the systems don't always logically make a whole lot of sense. It's like, In some sense, I used to joke that it's like organized chaos. Wow. See, in Iowa, if you were out in, in the birthday suit, you'd be ticketed and told to put clothes on for indecent exposure. And if you didn't, you'd be taken into the pokey. And, and that ride on red is something I struggle with when I'm traveling and, I'm, and I rent cars because in Iowa, you turn right on red, you stop, you look, and if no cars are there, you go. That's the rule. And if you don't, you got everybody behind you honking and flipping you off and saying, what the hell are you doing? You turn right on red. It was a big challenge for us as well, because the same where we came from. And my wife was talking to me the one day and she said, Jonathan, I don't know why every time I come across these walks on, and, I, and I make a right turn, I have these New Yorkers yelling at me. And, and so we're in an Uber one time and we're chatting with the Uber driver and, and we were laughing really like, hilariously. The New Yorkers get really angry for no reason because we're turning right. And, and they said, you're not allowed to turn right on. And that's how we learned that rule. So we had been doing it. Thank God we didn't get a ticket for it uh, because I, those are expensive tickets, but we had been doing it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> but every time she would do it, if there was somebody trying to walk, they would give her the, the New York uh, wave and you can imagine what that looked like and she was always trying to figure out like, why are these people so rude well it turns out we were breaking the law the whole time wow yeah that that would that would mess me up because and i've over the years especially if you're driving around iowa we we call it a normal stop but most people say don't you guys ever stop what do you mean we did stop 
no, the wheels never quit turning. Well, that that's a stop in Iowa. It's called a rolling stop. When you come up to a stop, and you look both ways, and if there's nobody there, you just keep on going. And, and there's no need to stop if there's nobody coming, for goodness sakes. We've got a couple of tickets for that one. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. You can walk naked, but don't do the rolling stop in front of a cop. Yeah. Pretty wild. So, Terry, it's always good to catch up, but I think we have a bit of an outline of a podcast around being a father and, and the success you've had in business and, and raising kids and overall just managing life and, and the pressures there. You mind if we jump into some of those questions? No, that'd be great. Cool. So, I guess the first question that I want to want to hit you on, and, and it's probably the most open-ended question besides the last one I'm going to give you, but what does being a father mean to you? Oh, I, I would say before I had kids, you didn't really take anything serious, right? You were just doing your thing and you thought you were invincible and you just went out and had a lot of fun for yourself. And, and then when we when I got married, I used to ride dirt bikes and, and raise a little bit of cane. And about three months before my daughter was born, I crashed my dirt bike and broke my shoulders. And uh, that really laid me up where I couldn't help my my wife through about six months of the, the pregnancy and then right after my daughter was born. And, and that was a, a wake-up call for me that it's not about you anymore, it's about your kids. And and so I think the thing that really hit me after we had kids and, and especially after my daughter was born and, and you pick them up for the first time and you hold them as, well, now this is what my life's about and, and this is why I'm going to work as hard as I'm going to do is because you now have a purpose that is laser focused on raising your kids, taking care of your kids, taking care of your family, and, and you become so much more protective over things. And then as as my son was born, it was it just amplified that, that you've got to work hard. It's You're, you're not willing to go without a job. You're not willing to, to put anything at risk because it's not you that you're putting at risk. It's your family that you're putting at risk, your kids that you're putting at risk. And, and, and so there's an old saying that you always want better for your children than what you had. And, and I never really understood that when I was younger. But after you have kids, it really hits you that I'm going to work to really give my my family and my kids a better life, to give them a, a jump start in, in society and a jump start in life where they have the ability to succeed. And, and I never thought a lot about college as I was a young adult. When I first went to college, I, I flunked out of college because I was partying too much. And, and then after I had kids and I got into my career, the college degree was something that was important to my employer. So I went back to school at the age of 33 and, and went back and got a, a four-year degree. And and that was the first time I'd ever got an A in school. I never once got an A in high school because I was more about having fun than about grades. But you start to really refocus your priorities and, and why you do what you do. And, and so for me, having kids really brought a level of meaning to my life and, and brought a level of focus to my life and, and gave me the energy to, to really try to excel in what I do and and how I support the family. And that's probably the biggest ramification and change that I went through after uh, my first child was born. And it has been that way ever since. And my kids are now uh, young adults and getting ready to leave the house. So we're about to become empty nesters again. And, and it scares me to death. I, I can't imagine not having them around. I, I hope that part of your empty nest plan is not getting a motorcycle then start there. 
it could be in it could be in the works, Jonathan. It could be in the works. I'll keep an eye on you, Terry. Was there a certain moment you switched in your mind that made you realize this kid's really independent on me to be able to protect and, and help, you know, raise them? I think it was the day that she was born after the labor and when my daughter was born and when the nurse wraps him up and, and puts him in your arms that first time, that, that changed everything for me. It was a spiritual moment when I had my daughter in my arms the first time and she was my responsibility. I had to take care of her. I had to make sure that things were good for her. I had to make sure that things are good for my wife and, and that she had the ability to take care of the kid. And so <clears throat> I think what changed me the most was the day that she was born. You knew it was coming as they went through the pregnancy and everybody would talk about it. And you got all the congratulations and all the showers and all that stuff that was happening. And boy, when that nurse handed me my daughter and she was in my arms and I looked down at her, that was a powerful moment. I didn't think I'd ever experienced that a second time, but it happened a second time when my son was born. And it just reinforced the focus and, and what you wanted to, to strive for. And, and so I would say the changing moment was when I held them in my arms the first time. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when you look at them and that you see their eyes for the first time, I think it just, you know, it has this profound impact where you think and then you really find out what love is. And for me, I had that moment, but what really switched in my head was a couple of weeks later, whenever I was uh, bathing my daughter, when they're small, you, you start bathing them in the sink, right? And we're I'm bathing her and I filled up the bath water and, and I had filled it up and I always tested it. But this time, you know, you're tired. I just did test it. And it was way too hot. I remember putting my daughter, Terry, into that water and her eyes looking up at me in this, why are you doing this to me? And I realized what I did at that time and I, put, I pulled her out. But I will never forget that those eyes and it even even to this day even when I talk about it, it actually starts to tear me up a little bit because it was so impactful to me that I, that was oh my god like this kid relies on me to protect her and help her and support her and she trusts me because I'm putting her carrying her into that water and, and so I can't mess this up right and that, that was the moment for me where I was like, you just can't screw this up you got to get this right and you know what the the first child is you're really on pins and needles. You think, oh my gosh, they're, they're so precious. They're so vulnerable. The inability to, to go through experiences like that. And I know when I was traveling, <clears throat> after my daughter was, was first born, I'd hear my daughter cry at night. And that just broke my heart. I could not take listening to my kids cry. And uh, so she'd start crying at night, as all babies do. And, and uh, I'd get up, I'd go and get her, and I'd bring her into the bed. And she'd sleep with my wife and I. And then I'd go on a trip. I'd be out of town for business. And I'd get back home, and my daughter would be in the crib during the night. And I'd hear her cry, and I'd bring her back in the bed. And, and my wife used to give me grief. So if you're out of town more than two or three days, i get her to sleep through the night in, in her uh crib. And as soon as you come back, she knows that you're back and she'll start crying because she knows you're going to go get her and bring her back into the bed. <laughs> and we went through all of that with the, the first kid. And I remember one time when we were out walking around the neighborhood, just taking a walk and my daughter was in a, a wagon, like a Red Rider wagon that you're, you pull behind you. And she fell out of that wagon and she broke her collar. And I thought, how terrible a parents are we? And we took her to the doctor and, and the doctor said, yeah, she's got a broken collarbone. And 
you know, I'm thinking like when I broke my shoulders, how much problems I had. Well, aren't you going to put a strap on her? Aren't you going to tie the arm up? How's she going to heal? And, and now kids, kids are resilient. They'll, they'll, she'll be fine. And I, I was looking at the doctor thinking, you're crazy. And, and so I was just devastated over the fact that she'd broke her, her collarbone. And by golly, I'd, I'd say about seven days later, you couldn't tell that she'd broken that shoulder. She'd healed that fast. No kidding. And she was just out running around doing all kinds of things. And that's when I started to realize is, you know what? They've got to have some life experiences. And, and, and so that did a change in me where you let them be exposed to more stuff once in a while and, and take a little bit risk and, and learn what life's about. And because that's the only way you learn your lessons. If you don't let kids climb a tree, how are they ever going to know not to fall out of a tree? So I, I really transitioned at that point to say, you know what? You can't put them at risk and you can't put them in extreme danger, but you can't take away the experiences that allow somebody to learn. And, and where you build your life experiences on is, is from your childhood experiences. And swimming was a big thing for us. I've been a swimmer and, and lived on a lake most of my life. And so I was always about taking the kids to the beach and, and to the pool and so we took our kids to learn how to swim when they were two years old. And a lot of parents looked at us as, why do you put your kids at risk letting them swim like that? And it's, well, how are they ever going to be able to survive if they're in a situation where they're in the water, if they don't know how to, how to you know, handle it? And so for me, experience equals wisdom. And during my daughter's first few years before I'd had my son, that was a hard thing to come to grips with of letting them go through experiences where they may get hurt. They may have a little bit of pain and, and emotional stress, but that's what creates character in life. And, and today, I think I, I look at a lot of the parents today that are having children and they, they refer to them as helicopter parents. And they don't want their kids to have those experiences or they want to protect them. And, and I think that that really takes away from people's characters and the ability to deal with with trauma and emotional situations and, and travesty that we all go through in life. How do you cope with that stuff if you've always been protected your entire life? And so after the first one, you're really focused in, in being protective. And then then you learn how resilient they are and how tough they are you start to move more towards the middle ground and with my son and, and there's so much of a difference between a daughter and son that I, I think we were much more balanced in that as as my son came along but I see that in a lot of young parents now of let them have some fun let them let them experience things that sometimes they're they're going to get hurt and if that getting hurt isn't life-threatening, it's not a bad experience for, for children to go through because they learn from it. And one of the questions that I have for you, because when you look at your business and, and your your career, you've been in the innovation and you've built technology and you've had to take risks. Innovation is partly taking risks, trial and error and failure and, and try again and learning that whole scientific process, right? How have you been able to manage raising children and, and giving them those risks, but also doing it in a controlled way that you just don't let a free fall. You also have to make sure that they're learning from those mistakes and that those mistakes aren't something that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. So it's not catastrophic, but it's a, it's a learning moment and even a bump on the head 
as long as it's not something that will permanently hurt them, it's not such a bad thing at times. How have you been able to do that? Boy, that's a tough question there, Jonathan. I, I would say it, it's, for me, it was probably more of a gut feeling. And then, of course, feedback from my wife, who I would say is one of the smartest people that I know and, and is much more measured in that than I am. I, I would say, for me, it was trial and error. You, you look at the situation and say, is there a chance for this to be life-threatening? And if not, yeah, give it a try. I'm a firm believer in trying anything once unless it's going to kill you. So I, it was really more for me, trial and error. And, and similar to the, the career is, is trial and error. Are you willing to take risk or are you willing to step up and volunteer for something when you're uncomfortable with it? When you don't know what you're doing, are you willing to, to jump into that and, and figure it out as you go? And so I think that the same applies to, to parenting is it's trial and error. Nobody's a perfect parent. Nobody can hand you a book and say this is the perfect way to parent because every child is unique. Some children just by nature are ad adventure junkies. I mean, look at the kids that grow up that are in the extreme sports, jumping off mountains and jumping snowmobiles off mountains and downhill skiing where you can break your neck. And, and so I think it's the, the uniqueness of each child. I think you be as a parent, you you begin to understand what that child's personality is and, and what risk tolerance that child has. And, and I'm a believer that if you try to suppress experiences or or try to block their ability to have the experiences based on whatever their personality is you make their desire to do that stuff even stronger and which can lead to, to worse things because they want to, they want to do it and, and they're going to be driven to do it because they're being told they can't do it and and so my, my answer to that question is, is a very simple one which is just it, it's trial and error and, and you do your best to make sure that you don't put them in a situation or allow them to do something that's going to be life-threatening or extremely harmful. But in the same token, you want them to grow up and you want them to have those experiences. And, and I find myself struggling with that now as my kids get ready to leave the houses. I want to follow them and to make sure that there's nobody that's going to take advantage of them and, and try to protect them and, and say, hey, you know what? You shouldn't go down into this area because it could be dangerous or you don't want to do this because it could be dangerous. And, and at a certain point, you got to look at yourself and, and say, I believe I did a good job teaching my, my children the difference between right and wrong and, and how to evaluate situations. And life's a journey and, and life is full of experiences. And if you get into a situation where you need support or you need advice or guidance, I will always be here for you and I will always give you that consultation and advice. But as you enter the world, part of what will make you you is the experiences that you go through. And, and I think that is so terribly important for people as they grow up, because if, if you shelter them, then they don't know the difference between those various experiences. And, and they could get into a situation that is devastating to them because they just have no idea what's going on. And so too much sheltering, I think, creates more risk for, for kids and too little sheltering creates risk for kids. And and so you try to find the balance between each. And, and I think the balance for each children is different based on their personalities. I mean, I can say my daughter is dramatically different than my son, even though they're from the same parents. How does that happen? And even with my own brothers, we're different. I'm the middle child in my family, and my views are terribly different than the views of my two brothers. And that isn't because I was taught differently or I was raised differently. It's because I had different experiences and the environments and, and the, the different 
situations I was exposed to. So it's a tough one, I think. And, and you mentioned that there was an approach you had with your daughter. And then when your son came along, you felt you got to a different balance from experience. And you also mentioned that they're very different boys and girls. Do you think that the approach that you took influenced the personalities? I don't know if it really affected them a whole lot. Because there's not a terrible amount of time between them, uh, two and a half, three years. I would say my daughter is more cautious and, and probably much more driven from a sensitivity perspective. And my son is, I guess the difference for me with, with the two of them was I was very protective of my daughter and still am. Mm-hmm. And my son, I look at more like me is, and, and as bad as this sounds, of course, you're a boy. You're supposed to be tougher. So you kind of expose them to situations that you think as a man, they should be able to cope with better than what one might think a girl copes with. And, and probably the biggest lesson that I learned in raising one of each is that's such a false fallacy for people to, to apply to their kids that you're taking experiences away from. And so when they were both still fairly young, I came to that realization and, and exposed them both to, to the same things and or tried to as much as possible. I mean, boys' experiences and activities are different than girls' experiences and activities. But I don't know if it really affected them directly as they grew up because they both are highly independent personalities and want to do things that they feel are appropriate and that they want to experience. And probably the the one that surprised me the most was just a couple of years ago where we took a trip out to Vegas and we went to the stratosphere. And on the stratosphere, you can hook yourself up to a wire and and drop off the top of the stratosphere. And I thought, well, my son's going to be all for this. That's what a boy would want to do. And and I was scared for my daughter because just as a father, you're more protective, I think, for daughters. And it was exactly the opposite. My daughter, she's I can't wait to do this. I'm doing this. I've been looking forward to it the whole time. She went up there and she got in line and she got up there and the, the gal at the, the stratosphere was basically holding her back from jumping off until they were ready. She was, I'm going to go. And my son got up there and, and he was second. He, he gets walking out there and he's looking down. And he's, I don't know if I want to do this. And the lady in the stratosphere says, have a good time and pushes him off. And down he goes. And by the time he got to the bottom, he thought that was really cool. But you look at that as at your two kids and you say, now, how dramatically were their approaches to that experience? And it just made me chuckle because my daughter was the crazier one on that particular situation. And so she's much more of, I would call it an adrenaline junkie. Uh, and my son's a little bit more of a, he's more tempered on those type of experiences. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know what drove those uh, differences in them, but it was just really fun to watch and, and I got quite a kick at it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I have a kind of a two-part question here then for you off of that because one of the things that I've picked up as we're talking is you've really noted the differences in your in your son and daughter as they've grown in their personality and, and that this is a really interesting example. How has that changed your management style where you're leading a large group knowing each person's a little bit different, especially in a world where everybody is being told you have to manage the same and you have to treat everybody the same. But when we absolutely know that everybody's a little bit different, they, they get motivated differently, they learn differently. And then the second part is one of the things you just mentioned, I thought it was fascinating is your kids surprised you. And so as you 
manage people, I think sometimes it's really easy to say this person does this and that's what I know that person for. But yet you, it's really important to be open and know that that person might surprise you. It happens to me all the time. I'm surprised. Oh, well, I would have never thought that that person would have had that talent and shame on me for having that assumption. So, you know, how have you been able to take these types of thoughts as you're looking at your children and, and has that impacted your management in those ways? I've been leading people now for about 25 years or so. And I would say when the kids were very young, I tried to tell them what and how they needed to do things. This is the proper way of going about doing something. And when parenting that, that's viewed as providing good structure and guidance. In the professional world, that's referred to as command and control. Here's how you need to do it. This is how I want it done. And, and I shall go do it that way. You as a boss, so to speak, of people, you have a view of how things should be done. And since you're in the lead role, well, that should be the way it's done, right? And contrast that to children. You take that same approach and you're trying to give them that direction and guidance. And on parenting, that's viewed as structure. And what I learned in, in both cases is there's a lot of different ways of going about doing things. And my way isn't necessarily the best way. And what I, I came to understand in both professional and in, in personal is Sometimes my way might be the, the most ineffective way of doing it. And, and so how do you unleash the creativity and the individualism of both employees as well as the children? And, and I, I think that comes to one word, which is empowerment. Empower your children to have the ability to make decisions, to have the ability to make mistakes, have the ability to pick yourself up and, and try it again and do better. And in the professional world, I think it's exactly the same thing is, empower those employees to get to the end job of, of what you need to be accomplished, but don't try to set exactly how they're going to do it because two people may do it entirely different ways and both those ways are just fine. And unless they're creating harm or risk to the organization compared to creating harm or risk to their individual, individual from a, a child perspective, there's no right or wrong way of doing something and there's no absolute way of doing something. So how do you empower, especially in the, the professional world, people to get you to where you need to be, to get you to the vision that you have without telling them the steps to get there because it's that creativity that you may find something really just jumps out and, and creates a whole new opportunity that you didn't even know existed. And I think to enable that empowerment, folks got to be confident in, in, in their ability to fail and not think that draconian measures are going to come as a result of that failure. And what I mean by that is if you fail at doing something, then you're going to get fired and you're not going to be here. One of my strongest philosophies in life is failure creates wisdom. And without failure, you're not going to be very wise. And, and so if you're not going to have the ability to fall and get back up and fail at what you do and have a second opportunity to say, you know what, I learned from that, I'll get better, and it'll be better in the long term because of that failure, that that's what good leadership is, in my opinion. And that's what good good parenting is as well. So I think it, it transitions both uh, sides of a person's life, and, and I've had very good experience with it. And sometimes it's a problem to really embrace that because you're looking at something and you can see that they're going to fail. Do you step in and prevent the failure or do you let them fail professionally when it's not going to have significant harm to the organization? 
Is it better to let those people fail and learn? I believe it is. And then the, and the same perspective on a child is, do I think they're going to fail or, or maybe possibly get hurt a little bit by doing what they're doing? Yes. Is it going to kill them? No. So, yeah, swing a little bit higher on that swing set because you might go flying off of it and tumble and say, okay, well, I know how high I shouldn't get on that swing set. And all of a sudden you're an expert on the swing set. So I, I think it's very similar in both cases, but that's that's what I learned both watching my kids grow up and then as I've matured over the, the years being a manager of people is let them fail. Let them try things differently in how they do it versus how you would do it because your way isn't necessarily the best way. And as the old saying goes, there's seven ways to skin a cat and, and take advantage of that because you might find a much better opportunity as a result of that. Yeah, what I find difficult and interested to hear how you've done this tactically is the how do you implement a consequence and also let people fail and gain wisdom? Or do you look at the wisdom that they gain and the result of that failure, such as a bruise on the hip, as the consequence? How do you balance those two and make sure that somebody understands there's consequences to actions, but you also have to make the consequences so that the person learns and, and gets better from it. And to your point, it isn't turned into a fear of failure. I think that's the real balance in it all. And, and I think that's fluid in each situation. And sometimes one makes mistakes. I mean, sometimes you might might say sitting on top of a skateboard and going flying down a, a big hill. Well, it, it, are you going to die? Probably not. Can you break a few bones and, and really get hurt bad? Probably so. Do you let them do it or do you not let them do it? For me, I would probably choose to let them do it because I don't think they're going to die and they might break an arm. But if they do break an arm, they're going to do it a lot better the next time they try it. They might not go as fast. They might keep their, their feet down to make sure they can slow down when, when they're supposed to. and uh, Or they might not do it at all because they've learned their lesson on that particular failure. And, and for me, that's what equates wisdom. And in the professional world, I, I think it's for me, how I approach it is if you do do something and it fails, and then it's a conversation about, do you understand why it failed? What have you learned from it? What would you do differently the next time and why? And if folks can go through those items, then what it tells me is they're applying critical thinking and they're thinking about the experience that they just had. Can you make mistakes doing that? Most definitely and, and have probably hundreds of times. But I think those people are better for it if you do it that way. God, I love that answer because I, I think that that's something you can take in, in business as well as your, your kids. And that's something, that's an area that I'm always trying to apply with my daughter. Even in athletics, we play tennis. And if she hits a serve wrong or she hits a forehand or backhand incorrectly, I always tell her, I don't care if the ball goes over the net, it goes under the net. What I want to understand is if you feel like you didn't hit the ball correctly, can you explain to me what you, you're going to do differently? That way you learn from that mistake, right? And I think that why and, and understanding and the critical thinking is it's something that unfortunately schools don't necessarily teach you. And, and so it's so important that you, you start implementing that thought process quickly in kids' lives. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Too many, I think, organizations just, they have a set way of doing things and they're not willing to open up and, and say, how can we do it differently? And and so I, for me, it's, this is the vision of where I want to get to. Get me to that vision. I'm not after telling you how to get me to that vision, but keep me informed on what you're doing. And 
if I think you're about to walk off the cliff, I'm going to tell you some things that, that hopefully it'll register to you as cautionary and, and will make you start to think about it. Now, if you see an absolute catastrophic failure on the horizon, you've got to step in and say, no, we're not going to go down this path. Here's why. And, and so let's talk through a different path. And those situations should be very, very rare. And it's good to get people comfortable and, and kids comfortable to be able to have those conversations with you. I can explain here's where I'm going and what I'm thinking. And, and it goes back to the point where you talked about not putting the fear in them that they can't have that conversation. They actually think of you as like a trusted advisor where you'll help them think through a solution. And maybe they come to the conclusion on their own that it isn't a good idea. Like maybe going down that skateboard path, it's a little too steep and maybe I need a little bit you know, more practice or you know whatever that is at work. Maybe I, before I go for that decision, that I think through it a little bit more. But to have the confidence that the person that you can go to is going to help you think through it and help you get to an answer versus just tell you or scold you, I think is so critical because that, that creates a trust. And that, that trust is one of the most important parts of any relationship. Yeah. And as the old saying, and, and th this is a, a lesson that I've learned too many times over the years, that when the situations do cause you to take that more intense approach or direct approach, that usually sets you back on the trust level more than you ever realize. And you never figure that out until after you make the mistake. You might go a lifetime trying to recover that for one situation that you just had a moment where you didn't take enough time to think about it. And I've had many, many, many experiences, both professionally and personally, from that perspective. And, and I think is what's led me to my philosophy as it sits today is I've seen how that has harmed me when I didn't even realize it was harm. And then you, you try to reflect back on that. And, and, and that's a failure for me. That's a situation that I failed in. And so how do I learn from that? How do I get wiser from that? And, and so it's both an approach on how you manage and how you parent, but it's also an individual approach of self-reflection and, and make sure that you're learning from the own experiences that you're causing as well. And that was probably one of the tougher things for me as I I'm growing old is that self-reflection and, and the fact that practice what you preach and make sure you yourself are learning from those same experiences. And that drives a level of humility uh, to an individual. And, and I think in many times, in, especially in today's society, there's not enough humility in people and the ability to look at somebody and say, hey, I messed that up. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I'll be the first to admit that that I was wrong on the decision if new data or, or new circumstances come to light. And there's no real value in, in trying to maintain the position. And I think humility is something that's been lost over time. And I think it would serve the society as a whole to get back to a level of humility. I agree more with you on that. And it starts at the top of the house. I just had this conversation recently with a good friend of mine around the, the politics and how you know, that that system, as well as the, the large corporate structures ha have driven that type of thought process. And, and what's interesting, you know, one of the things I, I think I saw is one of the politicians, you know, they, they had not changed their, their view in 30 years or 40 years or something. And they, they said that they said, Hey, I've been consistent for 40 years. And, and I said, Hey, that's scary. A lot's changed in 40 years and you've never changed. And there's some principles I can understand. Maybe you don't change, but you know, there's a lot of new data that comes in. So that to me is actually 
actually more scary than somebody said, hey, listen, this is the position I had, but here's all the things that have changed over this time. And that's why I've moved to this new position. That's to me as somebody that's evolving in their thinking. And you it goes back to the, the, the innovation discussion. That's somebody that's innovating and, and really open to seeing new opportunities and not looking at the same thing with the hammer that they've had for 30 years. Oh, completely agree. I, I know when I was growing up, I was a bit of a rebellion and grew up in a very, very small town where you, you, you had to go make up the things and, and to have fun because you didn't have all the, the sounds and lights of the big cities. And, and you would get in trouble and we'd go home and, and your mom and dad it ask you if you did something. No way. I didn't do that. And you would get creative to try to get yourself uh, out of that trouble. And, and then once they figured it out, they, they might whoop your behind even worse than they would have before. And then as I got older, I started to realize there's absolutely no value in lying and, and no value in trying to spin a perspective on something to get out of a consequence. And what I learned at growing up with my parents is if you just admit it, the spanking might not be as bad as it, it could have been. And the same in professional life. If you make a mistake, own up to it, and you're going to have more respect as a result of that versus trying to manipulate the conversation to not be accountable for something that happened. And I, I learned that early on in my youth and have tried to apply that as I've gotten older. And, and I'm a firm believer in it now. And one of the, the few rules that I am a stickler on with, with my kids and at work is two things I, I don't like and, and will have very little tolerance for, which is lying and breaking trust. You can make mistakes, and if you own up to it, you're you're not breaking trust. But if you don't own up to it, you're breaking trust, and how do I trust you going forward? And the same thing with your children is you can go out and do a lot of stupid stuff, guys, and you are going to do a lot of stupid stuff over your life as you grow up. But when you get challenged on it or it gets identified, own up to it. And, and take accountability for it because you grow at that point versus not. And it sounds like you've reflected a lot over time. If you, as you look back and you look at, you said your kids, you're close to being empty nesters. Would you have done anything differently than you did through the years, or, or what would you have changed if you if you had it all over again? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. I, I think I I don't think so. Be honest with you, Jonathan. I I think it was those experiences is what's brought me to where I am today. And and I don't think I would have changed anything. I have a lot of regrets, and I look back on things and and say, should I have done it? No. But did that help form who I am today? It did. So I don't think I would have changed anything. No. Yeah, I think that's important. And that's something that's not always appreciated is that I, I look back and I was oh, if I could change that. But now I, I've really started to say, well, listen, I, I did that. And it goes back to your point of you make mistakes, people are going to make mistakes. It's like that, that probably, you could probably classify that as a mistake, but I learned from it. And that mistake created who we are today. And, and so in some ways, it's, you shouldn't look so much back with regret because that, that, if you're happy where you're at in your life today, it's because of all of those decisions that, that you've had and, and the learnings you've had. So, I, and it's funny because I think people always want to say, oh, well, I wish I would have paid attention more in school. I look back at that when I was 18 years old at college and I say that all the time. I was, oh, I wish I would have spent more time. Had I done that though, who knows? Maybe I would have gotten burnt out and I would have never went for my master's because I wanted to prove that I could do something in school. And so maybe my career would have been drastically different. So at the end of the day, you have to almost appreciate the mistake. 
mistakes as much as the successes is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think my experiences in life and 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 I've had some really bad experiences and some really good experiences is what allowed me to have the success that I've had. And uh, I can look back on them and, and see a lot of the things that I would say I'm highly embarrassed that I did uh, and I'm ashamed of what I did. But it doesn't mean that I'd necessarily go back and erase that because it's what made me who I am today. And I don't think I'm a perfect individual, you know, back then. And I'm certainly not a perfect individual now. And, and all I can hope is as I as I age and I move through life that my experiences and, and the wisdoms that I've gained, I'm able to share with people and share with my children and, and encourage them to go through a similar journey in, in life, which is not everything is rosy and you're going to do some things that you're going to be embarrassed about and in some cases ashamed of doing. And that's okay. Learn from it. Don't run away from those experiences. Embrace them and learn from them. And, and Terry, when you look at the experiences and how that's shaped your thinking, there's probably some principles that have never changed. And, and when you were raising your children, what principles did you really feel that were timeless that you wanted to instill with them? And I think that the main things that I've tried to encourage with, with my kids are always tell the truth, never lie, and never cheat, and never steal. And those are things that I didn't necessarily always adhere to when I was a kid. And always be respectful of your elders. And, and that's something that bothers me tremendously today that I see in kids is a lack of respect of elders. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm talking to somebody that's one year older than I am. I'll, I'll usually refer to them as sir because I have respect of my elders. I don't make fun of my elders. I, I don't make fun of people as they, they grow old in life. And I, I really don't like it when I see children disrespect parents because that's a lack of respect for your elders. And, and so that's probably been the, the guiding principles that I've tried to reinforce in my children as much as possible is have respect for your elders and treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Sometimes that that's ironic because for me, I'm a very direct communicator. I speak very absolute in many of the things that I talk about. And, and some people take that as being uh, mean and harsh. And so recognize that about your individual self and, and try to temper that as much as possible. But always have respect for people and in particular, have respect for your elders because those folks sacrificed a lot to allow us to have what we have today, just like we're sacrificing a lot in many cases for you to have what you're going to have tomorrow. And, and so don't discount that. Why do you think that that's been lost along the way? That's how I was raised. And, and I also think there's a little bit of a small town feel to that. And that's a common principle for rural America where I, I felt so strongly. And I, even with my daughter, when I'm introducing her, I never let her just say the person's first name, even though the, even if when they assist, I'm always say start with Mr. And even if they want you to say the first name, you start with Mr. And then their first name or Mrs. And then their first name. But And, and that's me trying to implement that same principle that I learned along the way. But, but it does seem like something that isn't as you know, pronounced as it was, or maybe it's been lost. What's the drivers behind it? Well, I'm not sure I got an answer for that. I mean, I see it a lot. I'm not sure what's the driver behind it other than I think it's selfishness. And I think over this last generation of, of as kids come into society and, and work, it's, it's all about me. And what are you going to do for me? So I think what drives it is, is selfishness. I, I don't know if that's true or false, 
Yeah. But that would be my answer to that. And I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but it seems that the people that treat people like that are very selfish driven people. That probably has some truth to it for sure. When you look at the, it, just society in general has become so self-centered across the board. It, it, it probably does start to impact and even the family units, people are spread out, all the distractions, people are spending more time on Facebook than they are with their families. And for me, it's not only just holding your, your elders and being respectful of that, it's being respectful to everybody you meet along the way and treating them like you would want to be treated. No, I, I think you hit it right on the head. And where, where I see that a lot, or have seen that a lot, is white collar versus blue collar traits. You know, and and I think that's starting to come back around now. But a lot of times, white collar jobs and and professionals look down on blue collar uh, jobs and professions. And if I had to go weld something together, I'm not sure I could do it. I know right. it's fascinating because in some ways we've turned society into like measuring of success based on title and what's in your bank account, and that and those are the wrong metrics in my point, my my view. Very much so. I would agree totally. Yeah. And so, Terry, when you're looking at the life you've had and, and the uh, kids that you've raised, when you look back and they're, they're at the bar one day with their friends and they're talking about their father, what are the things that you'd want them to say about you? I, I hope what they'll say about me is that I took care of them, that I provided them a good childhood and enjoyable childhood, that they know that no matter what they do, that I'm going to be there for them and try to help them out. And that dad was a fun person. If I can get that out of him, I think I've done a good job. And what activities are you doing to get the, the fun check mark? Well, probably now as they get ready to leave the house, not a lot other than helping them go through their colleges and stuff. But hopefully uh, when they were younger, it's encouraging them to participate in, in activities. My son was in Boy Scouts all through his childhood, ultimately got an Eagle Scout uh, badge. My daughter was in golf and volleyball and, in, and Girl Scouts and took them on vacations and, and let them in, enjoy life as a whole. And so just beyond trying to give them the opportunity to have positive experiences, hopefully they saw that. And, and I'm sure they saw many cases where dad wasn't around or dad was traveling and, and they didn't view that overly great. But I hope they realize that everything I've done as, as they've gone through life has been for them. And, and if I'm successful in them having that view, then I think I've done a, a pretty decent job. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I know you've traveled a lot in your career. How have you balanced that? What advice would you give to people going through that? Because it, it does, it's like a, a machete on the heartstrings. And you and I have had talks about this whenever I'm traveling and I, I get the video with my FaceTime with my daughter. I mean, there's no other place I'd rather be than be home. And so you're, you are doing this stuff for them, but yet in some ways you're away from them, which is really difficult. Well, I don't know if there's a good answer to that one. I, I don't know if there is a good balance. I would say if I could have done it without traveling, I, I would have. Probably my biggest regret in life is, is missing out on a lot of the activities that my kids had because I was traveling, especially with my daughter because I traveled a lot more when my daughter was growing up than my son. But I, I, I think that's almost an impossibility to balance. And, and so when you are traveling, one of the things I used to bring home all the time until they finally got old enough to uh, stop wearing it and telling me that they were embarrassed by him was a very simple thing, which is a t-shirt, which was somebody who loves me very much got me this shirt in New Orleans or got me this shirt in San Francisco or New York or wherever the heck I was. I always tried to bring him back a, a little 
present or a gift, not an expensive, not fancy, but ju- just identify to them that when I was traveling, I was thinking about you because I'm not sure there is a good balance on it. And I think a lot of it will be driven by the experiences and, and the interaction that you do while you are at home. And, and then from the, the parent's perspective, I, I think that the biggest thing that I would say is do not make light of it. Do not make light of it because there will be a time when you reflect back on that after they've grown up and, and you'll be regretful and you'll you'll have a lot of regret in, in what you did miss. And, and I go through that today. I, I try to spend much more time with, with the kids than I did while I was traveling and stuff. And, and a lot of that is driven because of the regret that I feel not being around on certain activities. So my, my advice to people, especially young professionals that are traveling a lot and, and have young children is don't ignore it. Don't make light of it. It, it has a meaningful impact on you as a person in years to come that you won't recognize today. That's that's good advice. And it's always difficult when you're in the mix of things. Uh, but I, one of the areas I think you hit on through that, which was really important, is that when you do have the time, make sure you're present right, and, and, and being engaged. And we all have to make sure our, we, we support our families. But when you have that time, make sure you're focused on, on spending and, and making that real quality time. For sure. And so a couple quick last final questions, Terry. I know I've been keeping you and I could keep talking, but I, I, I recognize that you might want to get in, out and enjoy the Saturday. So I appreciate you even taking the time out in the morning to talk with me. When, when you look at, and these are rapid fire, when you look at your most proud moments, what, what are a couple of the, the proudest moments you have from uh, being a father as you look back? Probably the two proudest moments that, that, that I'll answer real quickly is the day I watched my daughter walk across the stage graduating from high school. She was one of the top top people in her class and I was beaming with pride and, and was probably never more proud of her at that moment than I have been. And my son is when he got his Eagle Scout. Those are two of my most proudest moments with my children. I, I thought both of them were major accomplishments. And my son graduates this year. Unfortunately, I'll have a odd virtual experience on his graduation that I'm I'm terribly saddened by that they he's not going to have that experience. But as my daughter walked across the stage, I, I could not have been more proud. And when my son got his Eagle Scout, I was I was just terribly proud as well. And so those, I would say, are probably my two of my proudest moments trying to think of them off the top of my head. Yeah, those are huge milestones. The Eagle Scout's no joke. So what was his final project? Uh, his final project was uh, putting up industrial grade shelving throughout a church here uh, locally in Iowa that they, they had a real problem and, and a lot of danger within some of their storage areas where they kept a lot of their material for the daycare and, and for choruses and all their instruments and all their equipment and gear was was stored up on these shelves that were very flimsy and, and had had some situations where things would come down and, and would destroy them or, or put kids at risk when they were putting their toys up. And so he went up and proposed a, a solution to the church and went out and raised quite a bit of money, almost $1,000, and spent two days. And all of his Boy Scout partners came in and, and they, they went to town on it. They did an incredibly good job and really helped the church out. And the church was highly appreciative. And, and it was not a real complex project. 
and not a glory project, but it was one that was very meaningful to the church. And so I was proud about that. I was proud of why he came up with the idea, how he went about discussing it with the church, how he went about planning for it, and, and showed good leadership and, and, and taught him a lot. So I, I was quite happy with that. And some, some go for a really grand project and and my son took the approach of I want my project to be meaningful to who I do it for and that's what he came up with and and I thought it was a very good project that's a good uh, life thought process making sure you're, you're making an impact and doing things that are meaningful and it's an impressive achievement I know anybody I've ever talked to that has had that achievement that's actually one of their proudest moments too so I'm sure he shares a, a similar proud moment in his life with you yeah, it was it was a lot of fun and going on at the summer camps and and uh, he was the first one in his pack to get the polar bear badge, which was camping. I forget how many nights it is below thirty two degrees, and, uh-huh. and uh, I think he took took a lot of enjoyment out of torturing dear old dad in that weather. But it was a lot of fun uh, every time we went camping. I bet those those have to be great members. Okay, and on the opposite side, last question. Tell me your most embarrassing story as a parent. Ooh, my most embarrassing moment as a parent. I would probably say that would be at the Iowa State Fair when both of my kids were very, very, very young. And we were sitting on a bench eating a flaming onion, one of those onions that get fried and you peel off the layers. And I looked over at this gentleman on the bench, and the fellow looked at me, and he was smiling and almost chuckling. And I couldn't figure out what the heck he was chuckling about. And he, he smiles at me again, and then he nods over to the side, and I look over, and and my son's standing there, and he's relieving himself out in the middle of the uh, <laughs> up there, sitting on benches. And I'm, what are you doing? Well, and he he was terribly, and he he just didn't think anything about it, and he finished up, and it all was good, and. That fellow looked at me and said, boy, I sure wish I could do that these days. <laughs> I thought, oh, my gosh. That is a great way to wrap this up. I don't think I got another question. We can top that one. <laughs> so, Terry, hey, man, thank you so much. Uh, I, I Just looking at the clock and I've stolen two hours on a Saturday and I've been really excited to speak with you on this. And I always enjoy our conversations, even when they're not recorded. And so I just really appreciate it. I admire what you've done. I actually very much look up to everything you've accomplished. And, and every time we walk away, I, I have, I feel like new lessons learned and I got many now. So thanks for taking the time out. And if there's anything else that you want to uh, leave the audience with, feel free to, to state it. But otherwise, I, I feel like you've given us a lot to think about. No, no real advice other than just embrace and enjoy your family and enjoy life. And, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to participate, Jonathan. I think what you're doing here is incredible and wish you nothing but success on it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time and uh, hopefully we get, we hear good news on that Iowa State Fair because I know that was uh, the first time we were going to plan on getting some families together and I couldn't wait to get out there. I, I, I hope we have it and I very much hope to, to see you come to Iowa. I'd, I'd, I'd love to meet the family and love to introduce you to the family. So if not this year, we'll get it next year. I look forward to it. All right. Sounds good. Days were perfect in my little pain.